Thank you. Well, good morning. <clears throat> Great to see you all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. And I uh, think it's just absolutely true that what we believe as people is shaped by who we heard stuff from and what kind of authority they have. What we believe about stuff, important things, not important things, what we believe about things comes from and is shaped by who we heard it from and what kind of authority they have. So uh, some of you have heard this, um, some of you are sick of hearing about this, that I played baseball when I was young, and uh, you're like, enough, do you have any other stories? No, it was kind of a big part of my life. And, um, and I was actually pretty good at baseball, um, and so I'm, I'm gonna, I'll tell you this, not to be braggy or to be humble braggy, um, but uh, one year in college, I led the Big Ten in hitting. So I was, I was decent, I wasn't terrible, but, I realize as I watch the way that hitting is being taught now, that a lot of the things that I spent a lot of time and my parents spent a lot of money training me in are not how you should teach people to hit if you want them to be in the big leagues today. So I was a very good player, did very well, and yet I'm gonna probably teach my kid to hit differently than I hit. And you go, gosh, well, why would you do that? Well, it's not because I watched some Yahoo on YouTube. It's because I have a very good friend who is a coach for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And he tells me, this is how we're teaching hitting today. And it's totally different. And so my belief that I should actually do something fundamentally different than how I was taught and even had a lot of success is going to come from the fact that it comes from a very reliable, authoritative source. This isn't just some whoever. This is a coach for a major league team. What we believe about stuff is shaped by who it comes from, who we hear it from, and what kind of authority they have. There are times where my kids will get home from school and they'll just say something. It's just, you, you kind of go, what did you just say? And they'll say it again. I'll say, who told you that? And if they say, oh, well, Miss Friesen told me that. I go, oh, okay. Well, I believe you then because I think Miss Friesen's smart. But if they're like, well, uh, Emma told me. I'm like, well, Emma's stupid. Don't listen to that. That's <laughs> dumb. Why did you say that? Like, that's not real. Like, or, or this friend or that friend, right? And, and so, so it's like who it comes from really matters, right? I could tell you right now that there was some kind of breaking news story and, and you would think to yourself, well, who, where's that from? And if I said it's from CNN, some of you would go, oh, great, fine, trust it. Some of you would go, fake news. Right, this is what's so hard right now when it comes to information, when it comes to news, when it comes to all that stuff, is because we don't know what authorities we can trust. It's difficult. We want to believe certain things, we want to take certain views of things, but where did that come from? What, what authority does that have? This becomes all the more important when you think about the authority that should guide your whole life. The authority for us as followers of Jesus, the thing that should shape us, the thing that should guide us, the thing that should direct us, the thing that should encourage and confront and rebuke and correct and train us to live godly lives are the scriptures. What's the authority that you're basing your life on? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a part of this church and you're a follower of Jesus, I hope that you would say the authority that I'm basing my life on is the Bible, the Bible. 
But why? Why is it an authority? That's what we're going to look at here today. This is week three of our countercultural, series, countercultural conviction series. Each week, uh, we're looking, as we lead up to Easter, at something that, that we as a church have a conviction about, that we want to take a kind of clear, firm stand on in the midst of a culture where it's kind of muddled. Sometimes these are things that out there in the world, there's a lot of confusion, but in almost every case, there's things where even Christians get confused about it. Uh, we realize some of these things we're talking about are difficult, some of them are hard, uh, some of them might raise questions, some of you, you might struggle to land where we land, and here's my hope is that, that this would kind of begin that conversation rather than end it. So if you wrestle with something that's shared today or something that's shared in the next few weeks, I, I hope that you'll engage us as a pastoral team to, to just get your questions answered and really make sure that we're thinking it through. The next few weeks are going to be especially interesting. And next week we're looking at gender, the reality that God made male and female, that gender is not a social construct, but a biological reality given by God as creator. The week after that, we're going to look at sex. What does the Bible say about what sex is and, and who it's for? That's what we're looking at in the next two weeks. So you're like, I think I want to come to church the next two weeks. What are they going to say about that? Yeah, you should come in the next few weeks, but you're here today, and today we're talking about the Bible. And a lot of the, the, the struggles that people have as they are thinking about their faith, maybe you're a person here who, who you just, you're struggling with certain things about, about, the, about the truth of Christianity, and one of the things that if, if that's you, you're probably questioning the Bible. Can I really trust this? We have this book, but what, what is it really, and, and why can I trust it? Here's our summary statement for uh, today. In a world that dismisses the scriptures as untrue, out of touch, and not to be taken seriously, we believe the Bible is God's authoritative word so that to disbelieve or disobey the scriptures is to disbelieve or disobey God. Now, here's the question for you. Why do you believe the Bible? Some of you are like, I don't believe the Bible. Okay, well, I'm not talking to you. For those of you that believe the Bible, why do you believe the Bible? Right, say there's some issue that comes up at, in, at the workplace and you're talking about some issue and they go, oh, well, why do you think that? Well, because the Bible says this. And people go, yeah, yeah, but who cares what the Bible says? Why do you believe the Bible? What would you say? Why do you believe the Bible? If you're a person who believes the Bible, why? What would you tell them? Now, there's some answers that you could give that aren't terrible, but they're probably not very compelling. One might be, well, I believe the Bible because that's how I was raised. And that's not a terrible answer. I mean, hopefully there were a lot of good things you were raised with, but, but it's not going to be very compelling to someone who's skeptical because they're going to go, well, I was raised reading the Quran. I was raised reading the Book of Mormon. I was raised reading this or reading that, or I was raised in this way. Or, or someone might legitimately say, so you believe everything that your parents told you when you were a kid? I mean, aren't there things now that you realize your parents were wrong about? or that your parents lied to you about, right? Mostly, I'm a parent now. I, I realize we do this just to get our kids to go to bed. I don't care, just shut up, just whatever, and you just go to sleep, right? That's kind of how we are, um, and, and, and your parents are probably the same way. So while, it's, it, while our parents do pass down lots of good things, and if you were raised in a, in a faithful home, that's wonderful, but a skeptic is not gonna go, oh, well, because that's who were raised that way, then it must be true, because people were raised a lot of different ways. Second thing you might say, why do you believe the Bible? You might say, well, I've studied all the world religions, and as I looked at all the different religions and all the different philosophies, I just believe that the Bible's the most compelling. 
And the reason you shouldn't say that probably is because you didn't. You didn't do that. No one's done that. No one even knows probably what all the philosophies and available options are, right? Maybe you took an intro to world religions course as a freshman in college, and you heard how they butchered what Christianity was. What makes you think they were fair about all the other things? You don't know. Maybe you'd say this, well, I believe the Bible because I've tried it, and it worked for me. I tried it. I look at what it says, I think it's filled with wisdom, I think it's filled with truth, I think it's filled with lots of good principles and good ideas, I think it's actually true because I've tried it and it worked for me. Now, I hope that you would say if you're a follower of Jesus that you have tried the scripture and it worked for you because it is filled with life and it is filled with wisdom and it is filled with goodness. But there's a lot of things that people try that work for them. Right, someone might go, well, I tried yoga. And it worked for me. I tried transcendental meditation. It worked for me. I tried going vegan. It worked for me. I tried marijuana. Worked for me. Right? There's a lot of things we can try. So just because we try something and it works doesn't necessarily mean that, especially as we're talking to a skeptic, that they're going to find that compelling. So, so what would you say? You're like, dang it, you took away the things I was going to say. I don't know what I would say. What would you say if someone said, hey, you believe the Bible? Why do you believe the Bible? Well, I hope you will say after today, I hope you'll say what Vody Bauckham says. Dr. Vody Bauckham, here's what he would say to that answer. He said, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. That's a, that's a thicker answer, right? What if you said that to your friend at work? Oh, uh, never mind. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to talk about this. I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report spiritual or supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. I think that's the best answer for why we would believe the Bible. And part of the reason I think it's the best answer is because it actually comes from the scripture. And the place that it comes from is the passage we read just a moment ago in 2 Peter chapter 1. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to just kind of walk through that paragraph and show you how everything he's saying is coming right out of, out of the text, what, what the scripture claims for itself. And so uh, that's where we're going to go today. Let's pray. Let's ask God to move in our hearts. Father in heaven, we come to you thankful that you reveal yourself, thankful that you uh, didn't just create us and leave us disconnected from you, but you've revealed yourself in creation. God, we can witness a sunset or a birth of a child or other aspects of your creation and know that you exist. But God, you've revealed yourself even more through your word, telling us who you are and what you're like and what your purposes and plans are for us. God, thank you most of all that you revealed yourself in Jesus, the word of God made flesh. God, today as we open your word, as we try to understand it and see why it's trustworthy, would you help us? Would you guide us? Would you direct us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Why do we believe the Bible? Well, first, it's a reliable collection of historical documents. If you have your Bible, look at 2 Peter 1, verse 16. 
This is written by Peter. Peter, by the way, was a follower of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was one of those followers of Jesus who had run scared uh, when Jesus was crucified. But after Jesus rose from the dead, he was emboldened. He was uh, empowered by the spirit of God as he witnessed the risen Christ. And so he was bold. He eventually died for his faith. But before that happened, he wrote a number of letters to encourage other churches. And one of those is 2 Peter. And here's what he says in 2 Peter 1, verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. That's what a lot of people would say Christianity is. Oh, it's just a bunch of cleverly devised myths. We looked last week at how if you were making up the story, especially of Jesus and his resurrection, you wouldn't make it up that way. But it's written the way it is because that's the way it really happened. This is not cleverly devised myths, but it, rather it's a reliable collection of historical documents. Luke chapter 1 explains this. Luke is the guy who writes Luke, and then he also writes Acts. And at the beginning of both of those books, he references a guy named Theophilus, who apparently had probably commissioned Luke to write these stories. And here's what Luke says as he introduces his writing to this guy, Theophilus. He says, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He says, listen, I don't want to just go on conjecture. I don't want to go on hearsay. So here's what I've done. I've interviewed all these people. I've had all these conversations. I've talked with the people who were there and I've compiled to you an orderly account so that you can have certainty about the things you've been taught. That's the scriptures, a reliable collection of historical documents. This is important. Get this. The Bible is a library, not a book. The Bible's a library, not a book. Now, it happens that it's all bound together in one book, and sometimes preachers like me will say something like, well, what does the book say? And, of course, we're referring to the Bible. But think about it like this. The, Bi the Bible's much more like a Kindle than it is like a paperback, right? A Kindle or, or, a, or a cell phone would have hundreds, maybe thousands of different books on the device. It's like a library, it's a walking library for you, whereas one paperback is just one paperback. The Bible, similarly, is more like a Kindle than, a, than just one thing. It's 66 books bound together, all telling one unified story, but it's more like a library than a book. It's this reliable collection of historical documents. You go, well, how can it be reliable? I mean, how can we trust? I mean, wasn't, wasn't it changed over time and weren't there all these different people involved who changed the transmission of it? And what's fascinating is that when you look at the manuscript evidence, and I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this, but when you look at the manuscript evidence for the Bible compared to other ancient documents, it's not even close. So nobody questions the writings of Plato but look at this for a moment. The writings of Plato, uh, Plato's writings that we have, the earliest manuscripts that we have from Plato were written 1,200 years after Plato was supposedly originally writing it. That's the earliest we have. And when you collect all the manuscripts of Plato's writings, on your table you have seven manuscripts. And no one says, well, I don't know if we can trust Plato. What about Aristotle? He's another name we've heard. 1,400 years between the earliest manuscripts and the events in the time of his writing. 1,400 years. 
more manuscripts, though, there's 49 copies of Aristotle's work. And again, no one says, ah, we can't trust Aristotle. Well, what about Homer and the Iliad? Here's a shorter gap, only 500 years between the time of original writing and the earliest manuscripts. And if you gather all the copies of the Iliad, you get 643. And again, no one says, well, we shouldn't read this. In fact, they mandate that every kid just get bored to tears reading Homer's Iliad through middle school, right? This is like part of the, you know, rite of passage. I suffered through it. These kids are going to suffer through it. That's kind of how we do it, right? Again, no one thinks he didn't really write it. Well, what about when we get to the New Testament? This is amazing. When you get to the New Testament, the earliest copies of the New Testament are less than 100 years away from the time of the events that, we, that they're recording. And what about the number? Over 5,100. That's just the New Testament. This is not close. And so does that make it true? No. But this is a reliable collection of historical documents. And if you want to get into that further, let me give you a couple of resources. One that you can look up on your own and then one that you can come and, and more participate in. The one to look up is go to Google and type in Daniel Wallace is what we have now what they wrote then. Is what we have now what they wrote then. Daniel Wallace is one of the best scholars in the world when it comes to understanding manuscript evidence of the New Testament. And he has a bunch of great talks. What's great when you look this up, you see all these videos. Some of them are 20 minutes, some are 27, some are 54, right? You can get it as long or as short as you want. But he's basically answering the question, is the same stuff that they wrote what I'm reading in my English Bible? Is that the same thing? That's something you can do if you want to self-study. If you want to come be part of something that we're actually doing here related to this, come on March 28th, that's a Saturday, for our Scribes in Scripture conference. Some of the best scholars in the country are actually at Phoenix Seminary. And so we have recruited them to come to this one-day event, and they're going to talk through all kinds of academic stuff that I'm not going to get into here, but that will help you, give you confidence in, in the fact that you can trust your Bible. This is really important as you talk to LDS friends, because a lot of the LDS folks, what they'll say is, well, we believe the Bible to the degree it was translated correctly, which is assuming it hasn't been translated correctly. You'll, you'll get some answers about that at this. Other of your secular friends are going, yeah, I mean, wasn't this all just a big game of telephone? No, it wasn't. And this will give you some answers about that. Not so that you can load up your gun and blow people away and be a mean argument winner but so that you can have confidence. Some of you, you're just doubting this yourself and you need, to, you need to look someone in the eye who's like really devoted their lives to studying this in a way that you never will and I never will. And you need to be able to hear from them why you can trust this. It's a reliable collection of historical documents. The second part of that sentence is it was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. This is not a game of telephone got bad, one person told another person told another person, and people far removed from the events wrote it long after. That's not what happened with the scriptures. Look at verse 16 at the end. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. Peter's saying, I was there. 
I heard it. What is he talking about? He's talking about the time when he went with James and John and Jesus up to this mountain and Jesus' divinity broke through his humanity in a way that made him uh, glow. He shone with glory in a way that the authors have a difficult time even explaining how transcendent he was. Moses appeared there. Elijah appeared there. And, and you know, Peter, th- this is one of the reasons I think the scripture can be trustworthy is because a lot of the stories about Peter make him look bad. Right? That's where Peter's like, this is pretty far out, dude. We should, like, probably build a tent for all you guys and just stay up here forever. Right? And, and if you were making up the story, you wouldn't always have Peter looking like an idiot. <laughs> but it was probably written that way because that's what really happened. And Peter says, I heard this, I saw this. And and in the middle of it, what happens is they hear the voice of God. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I think you'd remember that. Peter writes it down. John was another one of Jesus' disciples. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three letters uh, that are called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st John, here's what he says. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. He was an eyewitness. And this was all written during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul gives this just great gospel in a nutshell statement. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What's the point of saying most of whom are still alive? Say, you go talk to these people. This this is all happening within the lifetime of people who saw it. There's a bunch of little details like this throughout the gospel accounts. One of my favorites is in Mark. In Mark 15, there's the, the, the place where Jesus is on his way to the cross and he's just crushed because he'd been lashed and he'd been beaten and he's about out of juice and he can't carry his cross anymore. And so they get this guy, Simon of Cyrene, to carry his cross. And in Mark 15, 21, there's this little detail where Mark says, and they got Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. And you're like, we're reading it now. We go like, Alexander and Rufus. Is that like a band? Who was that? Who? <laughs> Alexander and Rufus, who are they? You know? and, and, and here's the thing. Mark was writing to the church in Rome, writing this story. There's a very good chance that Alexander and Rufus were part of the church of Rome. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, after the service, Alexander and Rufus, they're going to be in the lobby. If you have questions about how this went down, talk to them. That's what he's saying. So there's all these little clues of this. The apostle Paul says to Agrippa in Acts 26, he says, these things haven't been done in a corner. This was written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who could verify it, who could challenge it. It can be trusted. The Bible also the next reports supernatural events. That was just what we just read in verse 17 about the voice uh, booming from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, verse 18, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The Bible records supernatural events. Listen, the most controversial thing Christians believe 
is Genesis 1-1 and all that it implies. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the most controversial thing we believe. Because if God created everything, then he is Lord of all. And the way he says things should go is the way they should go. That's the controversy. And it does not surprise us then that if a God who made everything and spoke everything and upholds everything by the word of his power, it it shouldn't surprise us that every now and then something supernatural happens. That God somehow breaks through the norms of how he's organized history in supernatural ways. That that shouldn't surprise us. That should feel totally normal. And so that's what happens. You read the, the, the scriptures. You read of floods. And you read of people walking through dry water and a Red Sea parting. And you read about plagues. And you read about a prophet raising a widow's son from the dead. And then Jesus shows up and you see the lame are healed and the blind can see and the dead are raised and meals are multiplied. One of my favorite stories of this is when Jesus tells the disciples, he says, you know what? We've been on this side of the, the lake for a while. Why don't you guys go on to the other side? I'll catch up with you later. And so they're like, okay, how are you going to catch up with us? There's no Uber, Jesus. Like, what do you mean? And so off they go. And a little bit later in the night, the way I imagine the scene is one of them looks off into the water and goes, hey, did you guys hear Jesus say that he was going to catch up with us? Did you think he meant like now? Because he's catching up with us. There he is walking on the water. This is what Jesus did. Now listen, you read these stories and you go, oh my gosh, how can you believe this? Right, we walked around the wall seven times and then it all came tumbling down. How can you believe this stuff? It seems weird, it seems strange, and it is. You know the weirdest thing we believe? That Jesus rose from the dead. And we believe that because eyewitnesses wrote about it during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And if we can believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then I'm not too worried about whether the walls came down. I think they did. They report supernatural events, most of all the resurrection of Jesus, that took place next in fulfillment of specific prophecies. These supernatural events take place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. If you have your Bible, I want you to keep your finger there in 2 Peter, uh, if you're using an actual paper Bible, and turn back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is in the middle of your Bible. If you're using the device, just uh, swipe over there. Go to the table of contents first. You'll get there a lot faster. All right, Psalm 22. I love the sound of pages turning. Oh, that thrills a preacher's heart. I love that. All right, Psalm 22. This is written by David. And the first line of it, verse one, says this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because that's what Jesus says when he's hanging on the cross. In Aramaic, it was, Eli, Eli, lemme sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? forsaken me. Jesus goes to the cross in fulfillment of Psalm 22. I want to show you this. Look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. 
He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. People standing around the cross, wagging their heads and mocking. If you're the son of God, come down from there. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. You can't even save yourself. Look at verse 14. I am poured out like water. When Jesus died on the cross, the, the spear pierced his side and out poured blood and water from the fluid that had gathered around his heart, pouring out in water, just like this predicted. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. On the cross, Jesus thirsts and he cries out. And rather than giving him a warm cup of tea, they give him a sponge filled with vinegar to quench his thirst as he dies. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. Do you know what you call Gentiles? Like the Roman soldiers who surrounded Jesus? They were called dogs by the Jews. A company of evildoers encircles me. Yeah, one on the right and one on the left. Murderers and thieves. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. That's significant because the two people that were crucified next to Jesus in order to hasten their death before the Passover, they had their legs broken because when your legs were broken, you couldn't breathe as easily and you died quicker. Jesus had already died. All his bones were in count. So it says in verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots, which is what they did before Jesus died on the cross. Think about this now for a moment. David wrote Psalm 22 a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. And David had never seen a crucifixion because it hadn't been invented yet. The Bible reports supernatural events that take place in specific in fulfillment of specific prophecies like this and they claim finally that their writings are divine rather than human in origin look at verse 20 back to second peter chapter 1 verse 20 of second peter says this and knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy ever was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy Spirit. The inspiration, the origination, the power, the credibility of the scriptures is not from human beings, but from God. The prophecies don't come from someone's own interpretation, from the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The apostle Paul says something similar. Second Timothy three, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. This is important. The Bible is God breathed, not God dictated. So God didn't say, hey, here's the thing, write this down. That's not how a lot of the scripture takes place. Now, there are parts for sure in the Old Testament where God would say to a prophet, thus says the Lord, and they'd write it down exactly like that. But, but much of the scripture, especially the history, is not dictated by God. 
but it's human beings writing, and they're writing in their own styles. All right, if you read the writings of John, you'll notice there's a bunch of words and phrases and style of how he writes that's different than how Peter writes. And John and Peter both write a little bit different than how Paul writes. In fact, there's this remarkable place in the, uh, in, in, later on in 2 Peter where Peter's saying, hey, I actually have, he, he's saying, you know, you, you, some of you have read about Paul and the things he wrote, which are hard to understand. <laughs> I love that. Isn't that funny? Like if you've ever read the writings of Paul and you're like, I don't get this. Neither did Peter. <laughs> like that makes you, you're in good company. But here's what he says. He says, and some people, because it's difficult to understand, they twist what he says just like they do with all the other scriptures, which means that Peter, at the time of his writing, saw the writings of Paul as scripture. Different style, different rabbinical traditions, breathed out by God. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written by 40 plus different authors over three continents in three languages, different styles and genres, and one unified story of God making a sin-sick world new through Christ. That's the story. The question then is, well, so what? Okay, that's why we can believe the Bible, but... But, but so what? What difference should this make? And so I have three so what's for us. Here's the first, is that we read the word of God to know the God of the word. We read the word of God to know the God of the word. We don't read it to try to get answers, to try to win trivia, to try to win debates. <coughs> we don't read it for pride. We don't read it for accomplishment. We don't read it just to teach other people. We read it to know God. This is how God has revealed himself. And what a privilege. What a blessing. We have the Bible in our own language. Multiple translations of English. If you think the ESV is too hard, fine. Read the NIV. If that's too hard, read the NLT. You just have all kinds of options. And everywhere the Bible goes, it's spiritual fertilizer. Wherever it's spread, faith springs up. And we read the word of God. I hope you read the word of God. I hope you listen to the word of God. I hope you engage with the Bible, not so that you can get through it in a year, but so you can meet with God. God wants to know you. He wants you to know him. We read the word of God to know the God of the word. Second, so what is this? We must read a spiritual book with faith and the spirit. If you're reading it only intellectually, you'll miss it. You can't read it less than intellectually, or you can't check your brain at the door and imagine that all the normal rules of grammar and reading don't apply. A lot of times that's how verses get taken out of context, actually, is when you don't use the normal ways of reading. So you've got to use the normal ways of reading, but you need more than that. You've got to read with faith. You've got to read with the Spirit of God saying, God, I want to obey this. God, I want to trust this. God, I want to know you. Wanting to believe. See, some of you go, well, I never really understand the scripture. And it's because you're always looking for what's wrong with it. 
You're like the people we just studied in Malachi who, well, well how do you mean that? Well, why, why do you say that? Well, what do you mean, God? Why, 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 why? Not asking why curiously. If you're there, praise God. I, I meet with a number of, of people, especially younger people, who are wrestling with a lot of different things. You're, you're feeling pulled in so many directions because of what you learn at home and what you learn at church and what you learn at school and what the culture at large is saying. You just feel pulled, 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 pulled. And some of you are asking genuine questions and seeking real answers. And I have all all day for that. I, 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 that thrills me to sit down and spend time with you. That would thrill any of our pastors. That would thrill any of our student mentors or RC leaders. We would just love to do that all day long. But you know what I don't have time for? People that want to put God on trial and aren't really seeking answers. You're never going to understand it. It's a God-breathed book. You got to read it wanting to actually hear God's voice. Here's a third so what, is we don't just read the Bible, we let the Bible read us. If this is God's authoritative word, then it's not just that we read it, it's we let it read us. We come to it and we say, God, are there some promises in here that I'm not believing, that I need to take seriously? God, are there some examples in here that I... Uh, just haven't been following and I need to pay attention to. God, are there some, are there some things to confess, some sins that I'm, that I'm committing that, God, I need forgiveness? God, are there some areas of, of, of opportunity to pray for other people, to seek your face? God, I want this to read me. Search me, oh God, and know my heart. Help me to know if there's any wayward way in me. God, search me through your word. We're not the prosecutors who put God in the dock. We're in the dock, and we let the scriptures read us. Rosaria Butterfield says this, if God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then the Bible has the right to interrogate my life and culture, not the other way around. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which means he is Lord of all, and we let his word read us. By his word, he searches us, he knows us, he convicts us, he opens our hearts, and he leads us to life. Isn't it a gift that we have the scriptures? Isn't it a gift that God has spoken to us? Here's the thing you need to know, though. This written word can't save you. At best, it can, as it says in 2 Timothy 3, make you wise unto salvation because it points you to the eternal word of God who became flesh, Jesus Christ. He can save you. And this written word points to the divine word of God lived among us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, thank you for how you shape us and mold us into your image through your word. And we pray, God, that you'd give us greater confidence in you and greater hope in Christ. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.